The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. Let's say that one more time. Love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. And that comes from the end of T.S. Eliot's great poem, East Coker. And he wrote that when he was about 50 years old or so, I would guess. And I first came upon it when I was 17 or 18 years old. And ever since then, I've taken it as being something like the ideal of love that I should be aspiring to. Uh, Perhaps I might even say that I already had that ideal, and in those two lines I found uh, an immensely eloquent justification uh, for it. Uh, The idea that uh, what love is, and the best thing that love can do, is to almost erase your surroundings, um, whatever the limitations are of your surroundings or of your personality or the other person's personality or of your past or of their past or of what your living circumstances are and what theirs are and on and on and on. Somehow or other, the best place we can arrive at uh, with love is a place where here and now cease to matter. And it struck me recently that perhaps that's a mistake. Uh, and, I, and so I went back and I looked at what else T.S. Eliot says at the end of East Coker. And of course, what he says are equally famous lines, and they are these. Old men ought to be explorers. Here or there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion. Through the dark cold and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise, in my end as my beginning. Now, as a 17 and 18 year old and someone in his 20s who had a great bent towards poetry, I was just as attached to those lines as I was to the two lines about love. I was just as attached to feeling myself to be an old man at the age of 17 or 18 or 22 uh, who is still wandering here or there does not matter. We must be still and still moving, etc., etc. I was just as uh, compelled and inspired by that as I was the lines to do with love. But it never struck me that uh, putting those two things together shows, and well, not, not only putting those two sections together, the parts about love and the parts about an old man, uh, old men ought to be explorers, but also Eliot's biography. This is the 1940s. This is uh, after a decade where he has finally, um, uh, I don't want to say gotten rid of, but he has uh, been able to not be in touch with his first wife anymore. It is still a good 15 years, I think, before he uh, gets married for the second time. And he is living during the years of World War II almost uh, like a monk, almost like an ascetic. And so it it's uh, a surprise to me that it took me this long to see that when he says love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter, 
that he is probably not talking about what we would call romantic love, what he would call romantic love as well. And so I want to spend the next hour or so reading some love poems going back to the early 1600s and to just ask what is love poetry? Uh, can it be just poetry about romantic love, about uh, physical love, about uh, longing and sighing and all the rest of it? Um, can it be the poetry of friendship? Can it be the poetry of love for a friend, for a close friend? Can it be about the love of a parent for a child or of a child for a parent? Uh, what is love poetry? What are the, the limits of it? What are the depths of it as well? And also in a wider sense, uh, what is love? Beyond love poetry, what is love? What uh, love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter? How many different millions of meanings can a phrase like that take on if you are really desperate for it to take on any meaning at all? And I thought that uh, where we could start is with perhaps the ideal that I've been stumbling around with for decades about what love is and about uh, their expression in love poetry. And this is a poem that expresses, I suppose, whether it's a mistake or not, that sort of all-enfolding love where the beloved is everything to you and you are everything to them and you depend upon them for everything and they depend upon you to the point that you are creating each other. And this is Bride and Groom Lie Hidden for Three Days by Ted Hughes. And this is what it says. She gives him his eyes. She found them among some rubble, among some beetles. He gives her her skin. He just seemed to pull it down out of the air and lay it over her. She weeps with fearfulness and astonishment. She has found his hands for him and fitted them freshly at the wrists. They are amazed at themselves. They go feeling all over her. He has assembled her spine. He cleaned each piece carefully and sets them in perfect order. A superhuman puzzle that he has inspired. She leans back, twisting this way and that, using it and laughing, incredulous. Now she has brought his feet. She is connecting them so that his whole body lights up. And he has fashioned her new hips, with all fittings complete and with newly wound coils, all shiningly oiled. He is polishing every part. He himself can hardly believe it. They keep taking each other to the sun. They find they can easily to test each new thing at each new step. And now she smooths over him the plates of his skull so that the joints are invisible. And now he connects her throat, her breasts, and the pit of her stomach with a single wire. She gives him his teeth, tying their roots to the center pin of his body. He sets the little circlets under fingertips. She stitches his body here and there with steely purple silk. He oils the delicate cogs of her mouth. She inlays with deep-cut scrolls the nape of his neck. He sinks into place the inside of her thighs. So, gasping with joy, with cries of wonderment, like two gods of mud, sprawling in the dirt, but with infinite care, they bring each other to perfection. And that really is, to me, the, the ideal, and I understand it is an ideal, uh, but it is quite a joyful ideal, and I don't know of another 
poem, another, uh, another story, another quotation. Um, I can't think of a painted version of this. I can't think of a musical version of this that does this joy so well. Even the idea of these bodies having cogs and scrolls and uh, uh, all the rest of it, which can seem mechanical and make the people seem like robots and all the rest of this, um, wires. Um, I think the entire thing is just so gorgeous and it does express something very deep within me of what, uh, of what love is. So gasping with joy, with cries of wonderment like two gods of mud sprawling in the dirt, but with infinite care they bring each other to perfection. And so with that, let's spend a little bit of time listening to some other love poems. First off, we'll hear two poems that are separated by about 300 years in time, and we'll see what, if anything, they have to say to each other, what, if anything, hearing them together might teach us. The first poem is by Wallace Stevens, who lived from, I just want to get this right, 1879 to 1955, and this is a poem that comes from his book, Parts of a World, that was published in 1942. This is Bouquet of Belles Gavoir, and you'll notice something very peculiar about this poem, at least it was peculiar to me. It's very easy to think of Wallace Stevens, and I spent some time uh, reading over his poems for a much longer episode about him in the future. Uh, it's very easy to sort of think of him as the Stanley Kubrick of American poetry. Uh, everything that he does is very measured, very labored. Uh, very often it's extremely beautiful and it makes intellectual sense and it uh, challenges you intellectually. But it's very cold at the same time as well. And it's easy to find poems where Stevens is uh, sort of pulling the same rabbit out of the hat. He tells you something like, well, he's describing nature or describing a person or a situation. And his usual line is, well, I'm not describing the thing itself. I'm describing the idea of it, the idea of it that I have in my mind. He's always coming back to the idea that the things that we are actually attached to, uh, what we actually come around to, I guess, having solace in, taking solace in, is not the person or the scene in nature or maybe even the poem itself but it is the idea of those things what we do it with what we do with those things in our minds and so it's a great surprise to hear him writing this kind of tender and direct love poem and this is bouquet of bells Gavoir. It is she alone that matters. She made it. It is easy to say the figures of speech as why she chose this dark particular rose. Everything in it is herself. Yet the freshness of the leaves, the burn of the colors, are tinsel changes out of the changes of both light and dew. How often had he walked beneath summer in the sky to receive her shadow into his mind, miserable that it was not she. The sky is too blue, the earth too wide, the thought of her takes her away. The form of her in something else is not enough. The reflection of her here and then there is another shadow, another evasion, another denial. If she is everywhere, 
she is nowhere to him. But this she has made. If it is another image, it is one she has made. It is she that he wants to look at directly, someone before him to see and to know. And it's possible that even that is too cold and distant and intellectual for some of you out there, but for me that cuts straight to the heart, it breaks the heart. Uh, for once in his poetry, and I don't find anything else like this uh, in his poems, uh, for once he is miserable, uh, as, this, as the speaker says, he is miserable that the shadow in his mind is not the actual person. Um, for once in his poetry, the form of her in something else is not enough. Uh, for once, even the perhaps one of the corniest romantic images we have um, of two separated lovers who say, well, we can look up at the same moon and uh, we will feel that we are together. Even that does not work. Um, if she is everywhere, she is nowhere to him. It's almost as if the loved one has sort of dissolved by becoming associated with too many other things. Um, that sort of uh, attitude is taken up as a defense measure, perhaps, or just as a desperate measure of being separated. But then uh, you see that by associating your, your beloved with so many things and all these other things, of saying that God is everywhere, for instance, um, well, then at some point, God is nowhere. God is not in some specific thing, if the beloved is not in one specific thing. It is interesting that right towards the end, he does seem to go back to his usual state. Uh, but this she has made, if it is another image, well, at least it is one that she has made. But still, he comes around to saying, uh, it is she that he wants to look at directly, someone before him to see and to know. But now we will travel back in time to the year 1621. And that is when a man named William Dyer died. And his wife, Catherine Lady Dyer, wrote this poem upon his passing. And let me get this right as well. What does it say about Catherine Dyer? She was born around 1585. And she lived until 1654, which is not bad. She I believe she dies right after the English Civil War. And her husband dies right in the, the middle of her life, it seems. And listen to what it is that uh, Catherine Lady Dyer says. This is epitaph on Sir William Dyer. And I suppose you will understand why I say this is a love poem. She says, My dearest dust, could not thy hasty day Afford thy drowsy patience leave to stay one hour longer, so that we might either sate up or gone to bed together. But since thy finished labor hath possessed thy weary limbs with early rest, enjoy it sweetly, and thy widow bride shall soon repose here by thy slumbering side, whose business now is only to prepare my nightly dress and call to prayer. Mine eyes wax heavy, and the day grows old. The dew falls thick, my blood grows cold. Draw, draw the closed curtains, and make room. My dear, my dearest dust, I come, I come. And this, that poem that I just read, was uh, added to the, the couple's monument in the year 1641, 20 years after her husband died, at the Church of Saint-Denis in Colmworth in England. And it's an incredible poem in, a, in, just, uh, in just the interest of the words. The anthology that I have retains the original spelling of many of these words. Uh, one hour longer, hour is spelled H-O-W-E-R, bed has two d's at the end uh, blood of course is b-l-o-u-d and the uh, curtains c-u-r-t-a-y 
R-O-O-M-E-S. And the word room is spelled R-O-O-M-E. And you wonder if uh, the word come at the end was perhaps pronounced something closer to cum to make the last line be and make room, my dear, my dearest dust, I cum, I cum, I'm not sure. Um, it's a wonderful idea that she lives for another 30 years and yet she is writing about how she shall soon repose here by thy slumbering side, where the idea of uh, getting ready for bed in the evening is sort of superimposed over living the rest of her life. I come, I come, but I am not there yet. Um, I still have my life to live, and I will see you soon, that soon being a long stretch of time. Since this is from the year 1621, by the way, I will read it again, uh, because it is quite beautiful, but it might be difficult to hear only once and to catch all of it. This is Catherine Lady Dyer, epitaph on Sir William Dyer. My dearest dust, could not thy hasty day afford thy drowsy patience leave to stay one hour longer, so that we might either sate up or gone to bed together? But since thy finished labor hath possessed thy weary limbs with early rest, enjoy it sweetly, and thy widow bride shall soon repose here by thy slumbering side whose business now is only to prepare my nightly dress and call to prayer. Mine eyes wax heavy, and the day grows old. The dew falls thick, my blood grows cold. Draw, draw the closed curtains, and make room. My dear, my dearest dust, I cum, I cum. And in this next batch, let's look at four poems from the mid-19th century. The first two come from Elizabeth Barrett Browning's wonderful sequence, Sonnets from the Portuguese, published in 1850 and written a few years earlier. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning lived from 1806 to 1861. And if we look at just two poems from late in this sequence, we can see what she does with love. This is number 43, and you'll recognize the first line right away. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach, when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need, by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seemed to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. And she takes that familiar form, the sonnet, and the traditional rhyme and all of it, to say, I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need, which is very nice. The next poem, and if we want to see uh, what might be meant by love, we can just look at a sequence like this and see all of the different ways that Elizabeth Barrett Browning talks about love. This is the very next poem. It says, Beloved, thou hast brought me many flowers plucked in the garden, all the summer through and winter, and it seemed as if they grew in this close room, nor missed the sun and showers. So in the like name of that love of ours, take back these thoughts, which here unfolded too. 
and which on warm and cold days I withdrew from my heart's ground. Indeed, those beds and bowers be overgrown with bitter weeds and rue, and wait thy weeding. Yet here's eglantine, here's ivy, take them, as I used to do, thy flowers, and keep them where they shall not pine. Instruct thine eyes to keep their colors true, and tell thy soul their roots are left in mine. And that's a poem from a sequence published in 1850. If we look at another poem from another sequence published in 1850, we'll see something much different. When Tennyson, when Alfred Tennyson was a young man, he befriended another young man at college named Arthur Henry Hallam. And this was in the 1830s, early 1830s. And that young man died. And for the next many years, Tennyson ended up composing a sequence of, I think, uh, more than 130 poems called In Memoriam A.H.H., in memory of this friend that he loved so much. And this is what I mean. Uh, this was not romantic love, uh, but that these are love poems that he has for this friend that he loved so dearly. And this is just one, one example of one of those poems. This is number seven in the sequence. Dark house by which once more I stand, here in the long unlovely street, doors where my heart was used to beat, so quickly, waiting for a hand, a hand that can be clasped no more. Behold me, for I cannot sleep, and like a guilty thing I creep at earliest morning to the door. He is not here, but far away. The noise of life begins again, and ghastly through the drizzling rain, on the bald street breaks the blank day. Let's read this one more time. He says, Dark house, by which once more I stand, here in the long unlovely street, doors where my heart was used to beat so quickly, waiting for a hand, a hand that can be clasped no more. Behold me, for I cannot sleep, and like a guilty thing I creep at earliest morning to the door. He is not here, but far away. The noise of life begins again, and ghastly through the drizzling rain on the bald street breaks the blank day. And the last poem we will read comes from Matthew Arnold. Now, the first two poets I read from, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she was born in 1806. Uh, Alfred Tennyson was born in 1809. Uh, Matthew Arnold was born in 1822, but he wrote this poem, Dover Beach, scholars think, around the year 1851, although it wasn't published until 1867. And so you can see, uh, even, if he, uh, even if he did write it in 1851, how vastly different it is from Browning's poetry and Tennyson's that were published at the time. This is, uh, as the story goes, the, the, the poem of uh, a man and his wife who are on honeymoon together and the husband is up uh, having these, these dark thoughts about uh, history and everything else. And think about how is this a love poem as well. This is called Dover Beach. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet is the night air. Only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen. You hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. Begin and cease and then begin again with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. 
We find also in the sound of thought, hearing it by this distant northern sea. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear, and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. And it doesn't quite become a love poem, does it, until the very last stanza. We begin with Elizabeth Barrett Browning, um, How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways, and she takes the form and brings in the small details, the minutiae of everyday life to it, and then brings the garden into it as well. Um, there is that domestic bliss where domestic quietness is enough. We have Tennyson, who doesn't have this loved person to hold on to or to talk to or to have the company of anymore. And so he is left with memory. He is left with going to a door where the person no longer is. The person has died. And then we come to Matthew Arnold, who has his beloved. The beloved has him as well. She has him. Uh, they have been married. They are on their honeymoon. Um, they have the rest of their lives to look forward to together, and this is the conclusion, at least, that this poem comes to. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. This is the idea of love as the, the only barrier, um, even if it is an imperfect one, uh, the only barrier against the chaos and meaninglessness of the world outside of the relationship, and it's beautifully done. And now, I suppose, let us see what will come next. And why don't we move for this section to a series of poems about friendship, about parents, and about children. And the first of these comes from a British poet named Ruth Pitter, who lived from 1897 to 1992. And this is her wonderful poem. It's called But for Lust. And it says, But for lust we could be friends. On each other's necks could weep. In each other's arms could sleep. In the calm the cradle lends. Lends a while and takes away, but for hunger, but for fear, calm could be our day and dear, from the yellow to the gray, from the gold to the gray hair, but for passion we could rest, but for passion we could feast, on compassion everywhere. Even in this night I know, by the awful living dead, by this craving tear I shed, somewhere, somewhere, it is so. But for passion we could rest, she says, but for hunger, but for fear, but for lust we could be friends. All of these uh, other things could come in. Uh, compassion could be everywhere without all this other stuff mixed in. But isn't that the risk of love, after all, is that you 
have the possibility of compassion and hunger and fear and weeping and uh, rest and um, all the rest of it all mixed in with uh, with lust in this case but for lust we could be friends or just with uh, physical love and the complications of it I love that poem um, yeah and and then we go to another short poem this is a poem by another British poet named Elizabeth Jennings who lived from 1926 to 2001 and this is her poem about uh, her parents I believe who have grown a little older and this is a poem called one flesh and it says this lying apart now each in a separate bed he with a book keeping the light on late she like a girl dreaming of childhood all men elsewhere it is as if they wait some new event the book he holds unread her eyes fixed on the shadows overhead tossed up like flotsam from a former passion how cool they lie they hardly ever touch or if they do it is like a confession of having little feeling or too much chastity faces them a destination for which their whole lives were a preparation strangely apart yet strangely close together silence between them like a thread to hold and not wind in and time itself's a feather touching them gently do they know they're old these two who are my mother and my father whose fire from which i came has now grown cold do they know they're old she says do they know they're old these two who are my father and my mother whose fire from which I came has now grown cold. That's a good answer, isn't it, to uh, but for lust. Um, and how are either of these, how are both of these in their own ways, love poems, I wonder. Let me see. Let's go to the Seamus Heaney poem, actually, now. I mentioned this. I mentioned this poem earlier. I think Seamus Heaney's mother died in 1984, and in Seamus Heaney's, I believe, 1987 book called *The Hall Lantern*, he has a, a sonnet sequence called *Clearances*. And the third of these, I believe, uh, I can't remember. I think it was Irish. I think it was the RTE recently had a poll for the best Irish poem of the 20th century, which includes Yeats, by the way. Um, and this uh, beat out everything in the national poll. This is a wonderful poem that Seamus Heaney wrote, um, a memory of his mother. And this too, if we're thinking about it, is a love poem of its kind. I'm looking at the, the book here that I have of it, and uh, all but one and a half of these lines is, is underlined. It almost defeats the purpose of underlining something or highlighting it when the whole thing is highlighted. But this is such a wonderful poem. This is uh, number three in his uh, sonnet sequence called Clearances. This is Seamus Heaney. When all the others were away at mass, I was all hers as we peeled potatoes. They broke the silence, let fall one by one, like solder weeping off the soldering iron. Cold comforts set between us, things to share, gleaming in a bucket of clean water. Again let fall, little pleasant splashes. 
from each other's work would bring us to our senses. So while the parish priest at her bedside went hammer and tongs at the prayers for the dying, and some were responding and some crying, I remembered her head bent towards my head, her breath in mine, our fluid dipping knives, never closer the whole rest of our lives. And read that last sentence again, or that the last stanza is one sentence. So while the parish priest at her bedside went hammer and tongs at the prayers for the dying, and some were responding and some crying, I remembered her head bent towards my head, her breath and mine, our fluent dipping knives, never closer the whole rest of our lives. And you know what I realize about that now? I've read that uh, more than a dozen times now. Um, you don't get a sense of how old Seamus Heaney is in this memory. It could very well, very easily be a boy and the family is away at Mass. Um, that That's always sort of been my guess. Uh, the idea seems to be an image of him still living at home and everyone else is away at Mass, this memory that he has. Uh, but he, he could just as well be an adult. You can imagine being Seamus Heaney's mother. Uh, imagine that, uh, the, the mother of this great poet who you probably don't really consider to be a great poet. He's just your kid. And um, as far as I'm aware, Seamus Heaney's parents remained in the north of Ireland, even when he moved down to Dublin and the outskirts with his wife and children. And even when he uh, went on uh, different teaching positions in America and then at Harvard. It's interesting to think, to imagine this poem being about him perhaps in middle age and coming back from one of those trips and just being able to have a Sunday morning with his mother while everyone else is away at Mass. I wonder, I wonder what it is. Now, two last poems here. I'm trying not to comment quite as much on these as perhaps I usually would, and I'm not really sure why, but this next poem is from Louise Glick, the American poet Louise Glick, who was born in 1943, and she is still going strong. She brought out a book just last year, I think. And this is probably, this is from what is probably my favorite book of hers, a 1990 book called Ararat. These last two poems are about the relationship between parents and their children. And this is a poem called uh, Brown Circle from Louise Glick. Listen to what this says. Uh, this will snap your heart in half, I think. At least it always does for me. This is Brown Circle. My mother wants to know why, if I hate family so much, I went ahead and had one. I don't answer my mother. What I hated was being a child, having no choice about what people I loved. I don't love my son the way I was meant to love him. I thought I'd be the lover of orchids who finds red trillium growing in the pine shade and doesn't touch it, doesn't need to possess it. What I am is the scientist who comes to that flower with a magnifying glass and doesn't leave, though the sun burns a brown circle of grass around the flower, which is more or less the way my mother loved me. I must learn to forgive my mother now that I'm helpless to spare my son. Now, isn't that something? Um, the, the book Ararat, I think in the episodes that I've done just on Louise Glick's poetry, I think I said it's a, it's a great hint as to just how, uh, how deeply 
uh, a poet can really mine autobiography and how they can really get it done. I don't know of a book about autobiography and family and uh, one's relation to their siblings. I believe one of Louise Glick's sisters died and she left behind uh, Louise Glick and one other sister and the difficulties of that, uh, the difficulties of uh, just being the daughter of their mother and father. I mean, just general difficulties of being a child. Now, if we go to something else completely different, uh, the Irish poet Avon Boland, who only died in 2020, she lived from 1944 to 2020. She has written a wonderful series uh, of poems all through her, uh, all through her career about her daughters, and many of them are connected to mythology. She loves the the myth of, of Demeter and Persephone, and uh, the mother who has to go down and retrieve the daughter from the underworld, and she connects that with uh, seeing her daughter far away at soccer practice and uh, recognizing her in the distance, and she does wonderful things with myth and with her daughters and with the familiar themes of, you know, I raised my daughters, but they have emigrated since then, whether it's to England or the continent or to America, I'm not sure. But it's that common Irish story, but it sounds completely new when you hear Avon Boland doing it. This is a, a different poem, though. This is a poem called The Necessity for Irony. And I think it means something that she is writing this poem when she herself, let's see, book. What year does this come from? It comes from a book published in 1998. So uh, this is well after, I believe, her daughters have grown up. And I think that's important, too. She didn't write this poem when her daughter is 12 years old, as she is in the poem. She wrote this after her daughter has grown up and after she herself has grown a bit older. And think about this as a love poem as well. I hope I haven't rushed through these one, two, three, four, five poems tonight uh, for this little batch, but it seemed worth just doing these ones on family and friendship, parents and children, and just letting them fly. And I wonder what you all make of them out there. This is called The Necessity for Irony by Avon Boland. And she says, on Sundays, when the rain held off, after lunch or later, I would go with my 12-year-old daughter into town and put down the time at junk sales, antique fairs. There, I would lean over tables, absorbed by lace, wooden frames, glass. My daughter stood at the other end of the room, her flame-colored hair obvious whenever, which was not often, I turned around. I turned around. She was gone, grown, no longer ready to come with me. Whenever a dry Sunday held out its promises of small histories, endings. When I was young, I studied styles, their use and origin, which age was known for which ornament, and was always drawn to a lyric speech, a civil tone, but never thought I would have the need, as I do now, for a darker one. Spirit of irony, my caustic author of the past, of memory and of its pain, which returns, hurts, stings, reproach me now Remind me that I was in those rooms with my child, with my back turned to her, searching, oh irony, for beautiful things.
And for this last bit on love poetry, I was hoping to fit in some Andrew Marvell and maybe a John Donne or two, but I think I will just skip to two American voices from the mid-19th century. We remember the 19th century uh, British voices that we heard from. And now just imagine that uh, these poets that I'm about to read were writing at just about the same time and how uh, how differently they get it done, even even how differently from somebody like Matthew Arnold. This is Walt Whitman in one of my favorite poems of his that's called To a Stranger. And I've talked about this in my episode on Whitman's love poems. Uh, what a strange, bizarre poem this is. And what is he actually really saying here in, in this poem about longing? This is his poem to a stranger. Passing stranger, you do not know how longingly I look upon you. You must be he I was seeking, or she I was seeking. It comes to me as of a dream. I have somewhere surely lived a life of joy with you. All is recalled as we flit by each other, fluid, affectionate, chaste, matured. You grew up with me, were a boy with me or a girl with me. I ate with you and slept with you. Your body has become not yours only, nor left my body mine only. You give me the pleasures of your eyes, face, flesh, as we pass. You take of my beard, breast, hands, in return. I am not to speak to you. I am to think of you when I sit alone, or wake at night alone. I am to wait. I do not doubt I am to meet you again. I am to see to it that I do not lose you. Now, what, what is he doing there? A uh, passing stranger, see someone in the street. A uh, passing stranger, you, don't know, you do not know how longing I look upon you. And then this reverie, you must be the person I grew up with, the person I was seeking. You must be the person I was seeking. And because of that, I must have somewhere lived a life with you as a child. We must have grown up together. I ate with you and slept with you. Your body is mine. You give me the pleasure of your eyes, face, flesh as we pass. That's as we pass on the street, the passing stranger. You're back in the present moment. Um, I look longingly on you. You must be the person I was seeking. We must have had this life together. But as we pass, you give me the pleasure of just, of just seeing your eyes, face, flesh, as we pass. And it says, you take of my beard, breast, hands, in return. Perhaps he thinks that they're looking at him, too. But then he comes to that thing, all of this familiarity. I look longingly on you. You're the person I've been looking for. We must have had a past together. You give me the pleasure of looking at you as you walk by, but I'm not to speak to you. I am, I am not to speak to you. I am to think of you when I sit alone or wake at night alone. That is, is that love? Is that love for Walt Whitman? Is that love for many of us out there in the year 2023? I have this image of you. I have just seen you. You've just walked by. I am not going to talk to you. It is my job to think of you when I sit alone or when I wake at night alone. That is my job. I am to wait. I do not doubt that I am to meet you again. But what does that mean? I do not doubt. I do not doubt I am to meet you again. But for what? Just to see you in a crowd again? Just to have the joy of watching you walk by? Or is it something more? I am to see to it that I do not lose you. I am to see to it that I do not lose you. But then you think, 
in, in the realm of traditional romantic poetry, where it's about physical uh, fulfillment eventually, by the, by the time you get to the last line of the poem, um, uh, and all the rest. So what is he talking about? What, what is he talking about losing? Um, it is almost, if we remember back, back to many earlier episodes where I talked about Whitman and love and Whitman and sex, uh, the idea of longing in Whitman, the idea that for him the ideal was to observe someone and to love them from a distance. And the thing that ruined it for him was to express it to this person, to let it out, to uh, take that risk or feel that shame of possibly being rejected and all the rest. Um, I'm really struck by that. I think of someone else in Manhattan or just someone in suburban Pittsburgh, you know, in a, in a, in a strip mall somewhere, um, just overcome by this person that they see. And the conclusion they come to is, I am not to speak to you. I am not to speak to you. I am to think of you when I sit alone or awake at night alone. To me, that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart perhaps because it's me, but it breaks my heart because uh, part of me still thinks, well, that isn't all that love is. Love can be the next step and the next five steps, the next 20 steps, but does it? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I am to wait. I do not doubt. I am to meet you again. I am to see to it that I do not lose you. And I will leave you with love poetry, with one of the great love poems uh, in the language. And again, you wonder how much of this is fantasy, how much of this is something that was fulfilled, how much of this was something that the author never wanted to be fulfilled. This is Emily Dickinson. Um, I won't comment on it afterwards. We'll just leave it at this. And I will say thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, but, but what do we take this poem to be? Is this something that she wanted to happen? Is this something that she felt fulfillment in simply writing this astonishing poem? There's nothing else like this in the English language that sounds like this, or even on the page that just looks like this. The exclamation points and the dashes. Uh, what do we think of love? Uh, what do we mean by love? What do we mean by romantic love or platonic love or familial love or the love of friend for friend, parents for children, children for parents, adults for adults, or just romantic love? What do we mean by any of this stuff? And Emily Dickinson has this to say about it. She says, Wild nights, wild nights, were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. Futile the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart, rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. And coupled with Walt Whitman, uh, what a turn that is from Elizabeth Barrett Browning and uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson and Matthew Arnold. Let's just read that one more time and say goodnight here. Wild nights, wild nights, were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. Futile the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. 
If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.